Orthodoxy. My name is Duncan Rayburn and this is episode 2 in my series on the book of Exodus. Let's jump right in, shall we? So far I've only really introduced you to the context within which the Exodus story takes place, although context is always super important to any kind of storytelling. This is kind of the, the introduction to any film, sets up the context, and the context of the Exodus story is that of slavery. Egypt has enslaved the children of Abraham. Of course, actual slavery is something that most of us, thankfully, have not experienced, although it is still a major problem in the world today, which is, I guess, in some ways surprising and alarming. But all of us know what it's like to feel trapped, um, and obviously unclear of how to escape a difficult circumstance or maybe even a state of mind. Depression may be slavery to you, uh, or anxiety, or some kind of personality pattern. Other things can enslave too. Situations, bad relationships, addictions, ideologies, maybe a kind of lifestyle you happen to be living. And I think one of the reasons that the Exodus story still resonates so powerfully with people today is that it shows us that slavery to anything is not the way things should be. Maybe we are dependent on things, but we don't have to be enslaved to them. And the Exodus story presents a very hopeful message, um, although not necessarily optimistic. It's not sort of a happy-go-lucky message. It suggests that slavery is tough, and getting out of slavery is tough. Maybe even tougher than the slavery itself, since slavery to anything presents itself as a habit that goes unchallenged for way too long. It's difficult to get the slave out of Egypt, but it's possibly even more difficult to get Egypt out of the slave. Key to understanding what happens next in the Exodus story is the idea that Moses is a symbol for virtue. This at least is Gregory of Nyssa's take. The subject of virtue is something that needs at least a book, and it's something that I hope to come back to um, later on in, in the year in this podcast, but here's a quick outline of what I mean when I talk about virtue. In a great deal of classical philosophy, virtue is really at root the issue of how to live out the human reality to its fullest. It's really not about moralism and pharisaism or any of the negatives that stem from being overly confident about how right you happen to think you are. For the early Christians, virtue was about how to be in tune with the reality that is God, the highest good. In Orthodox and Catholic Christian theology, there are seven cardinal virtues. Prudence or wisdom comes first because that's the ability to know the real and then judge how to act in accordance with that reality. In ancient art, prudence is often allegorized as a person being attacked by a serpent or dragon, very much like St. George being attacked by a dragon. The idea here is that facing the chaos dragons of life involves not just brute strength or power or domination, because those things are really mirror images of the evil that we might be wanting to overcome. Rather, facing chaos requires wisdom, which is a very strong sense of how to discern and be allied to the truths of reality. Courage, then, is the, the second cardinal virtue, which is often allegorized as a human figure facing up to a lion. Think of Samson overcoming a lion, if you like. Courage is the ability to confront fear, uncertainty, and intimidation. And it's not, interestingly enough, the absence of fear, but the refusal to accept that fear should have the last word. 
In fact, courage without fear isn't really courage. It's more like stupidity. I think that's possibly a way to discern the line between courage and stupidity is um, if fear is present. Um, courage is really the, uh, the ability or the, the decision to act against fear. Temperance, then, is the third cardinal virtue and probably the least appreciated of the virtues these days since um, excess is really something that a lot of people are fond of. Temperance is often allegorized as water and wine in two separate jugs or as the bridle and reins that channel a horse's energy into something useful. I think that's a wonderful uh, way of, of understanding temperance. So temperance is not a joy killer, but the recognition that really true joy and pleasure hardly a ever happen in excesses. Um, you might, you know, get away with enjoying something in excess for a little while, but at some point it's going to overtake you and it's going to kill the joy, which is, I suppose, um, what addiction uh, shows a lot of us. The good life is the life that enjoys pleasures as genuine gifts, not as things to be absent-mindedly taken for granted. Then justice is the fourth cardinal virtue, also called fairness. This is allegorized as balancing the scales. The idea of justice is not like revenge ethics. Um, it is not about proving who is right, but making sure that what is right is what ends up happening. It's, it's not just about one specific person's individual grudge against someone else who's done them wrong, but about what, need, what right needs to happen for the whole situation, and then ultimately for the whole world. To these uh, four cardinal virtues, prudence, courage, temperance, and justice, the early Christians added three more, faith, hope, and love. In fact, um, the early Christians actually would argue that these are primary and then the others follow from these, although I guess they're all intertwined as well. Faith is our posture towards and consciousness of the truth that exceeds our grasp. So faith is not an epistemic category. It's not about knowing. It's about trusting someone, God say, who knows more. And then hope is the willingness to, to reach out towards the good, the good that exists beyond the evil that we may face. This is not goodness beyond good and evil in Nietzsche's language. This is the genuinely good. It's something that is discoverable in, in the actual concrete reality. And then finally, love is the act of generous affirmation of the real. Love is particularly central because it is, in a way, the consummation of all virtue. It's also something that is manifest in the other virtues. The point of living a virtuous life is to fully align oneself with true, intelligible being, which is pure gift. Virtue is about standing by what is eternal, over against what is perishing and what ultimately degrades existence. Somehow, though, this aim gets hijacked in culture, such that people insist upon petty rules along the lines of culturally acceptable behavior, instead of thinking about what it means to be truly and fully alive. Again, virtue is not about moralism. Actually, it may help you when you hear me mention the word virtue again, Rather think of the idea of being fully alive than thinking about sort of moral rules, because that's what I'm really talking about. With that in mind, then, we can get back into the text of Exodus. 
In the first chapter of Exodus, we have more than a few indications that Pharaoh was really nervous about the increasing size of the Hebrew population. His first attempt to stop this was by increasing their workload, because he was working under the false assumption that making people work harder would prevent them from having sex, which I think is really hilarious, but clearly he was working from a false view of human nature. What really happened was that the affliction did nothing but help the enslaved people to multiply. This is an echo of an idea that I've already discussed. You could take this idea, the idea that increasing hardship caused the people, the Hebrew people to multiply as the biblical equivalent of Nietzsche's famous saying, what does not kill you makes you stronger. There is, of course, much you could do to parody Nietzsche's way of phrasing the idea. But the truth of it is that this the struggle against a thing, as Nietzsche knew very well from personal experience, often strengthens the thing. Resistance gives power to the resisted, similar to the way that microfractures increase the strength of the taekwondo master who wants to chop through planks and bricks with his bare hands. If we take Gregory of Nyssa's interpretation of the Exodus into account, with its focus on virtue, this idea also raises a question as to what is stronger, good or evil. As I've already said, and in keeping with Gregory's view, good is always ultimately the stronger thing. Good always is going to find a way to have the last word, although it may do this in often unexpected ways. Because Pharaoh found the strange mathematics of Hebrew population increase so troublesome, he took the next step. He ordered the massacre of all male babies. Gregory reads this in a rather interesting way. He says, and I quote, The austerity and intensity of virtue is the male birth, which is hostile to the tyrant and suspected of insurrection. Isn't that a great line? <laughs> Even if you don't know what it means, it's a great line. Gregory equates the masculine with virtue, and I think this is something that men everywhere would do really well to be worthy of. What's important to notice here is that it is masculine virtue that Pharaoh opposes precisely because he is the epitome of the very unvirtuous patriarchy. Gregory isn't setting up a, an unhelpful gender binary between the masculine and the feminine, but is instead opposing unhealthy masculinity, which is represented by the tyrannical patriarchal Pharaoh, and healthy masculinity, which is represented then by the birth and growth of virtue in Moses. This is something that animus-possessed feminists would do very well to pay attention to. The solution to toxic masculinity isn't toxic femininity, which is really just another form of hyper-masculinity. Rather, the, the actual solution is virtue. Maybe this is just me going too far off the beaten exegetical track, but it's worth pondering given that many debates around identity politics are going on today that, I mean, I find them quite nauseating because they get caught up in all the wrong equations. In any case, by highlighting that the male birth is a symbol of virtue in the Exodus story, Gregory of Nyssa is doing something pretty amazing. He's pointing out that what is needed when slavery dominates is not a competitive or rivalrous mindset, but a mindset that sees virtue as having priority over the parasite that evil is. Virtue, again, being how to be fully alive, fully human. So, of course, there is never a simple dichotomy that can be maintained between the masculine 
and the feminine. In Jung's analytic psychology, individuation is strongest when the masculine and the feminine recognize their mutual interdependence, even within the individual. These two energies, the masculine and the feminine, rely on each other, but also um, should not be divorced or simply reduced to some androgynous Gnostic ideal. As I've already suggested, there are good forms of masculinity and bad forms of, of it, and the same would go for femini femininity. There would be good forms of it and bad. What is certain in Exodus is that the bad form of masculinity is epitomized by the Pharaoh's dealing in the calculus of violence and death. But to remedy this, not at the level of rivalry, but rather at the level of genuine compassion, we have the positive aspect of the feminine, which is always linked to giving and nurturing life, and also to seeing the best in the masculine, and sort of trying to, to rescue and, and help that to, to grow. And it's precisely this giving of life, this kind of stubborn affirmation of life against death that sustains virtue. Let's assume then that Gregory's equation of the masculine with virtue is a metaphor for the virtues that any of us possess. At a more personal level, which is the primary way that the story should speak to us, I feel this raises the question of what parts of ourselves are tyrannically trying to squash or eradicate virtue. What parts of ourselves are enslaving other parts of ourselves? What parts of ourselves want to avoid the truth or the good? This is an amazing um, thing about human nature is that often we are in fact somehow sabotaging ourselves and I think that's that's part of what we need to question. Is there some part of ourselves that is like the Pharaoh? Um, have we maybe aligned ourselves with systems and procedures and ideologies that work against the hope of being fully alive? Again, is there something within each of us that is Pharaoh-like? Gregory of Nyssa goes on to suggest that Pharaoh misguidedly believed that the feminine was not nearly as troublesome as the masculine. Um, Gregory writes, the female form of life is favored by the tyrant. Of course, this raises the question of whether Pharaoh actually knew any actual woman. Uh, but of course, the tyrant didn't recognize that, the fe that feminine virtue and masculine virtue need each other. In many ways, feminine virtue is the context for ma masculine virtue. Um, virtue must first be conceived of and then nurtured before it can be raised and, and tested. If the birth of Moses is a symbol for the birth of virtue, we can also take it as a symbol for possibility, promise, hope, and a kind of wild expectation of new life that stretches beyond the particulars of this one little life. This, in a way, is what the birth of any child signifies, because life is always, in a way, bigger than itself. Uh, to borrow from John Mayer, we are always bigger than our bodies give us credit for. It's significant that Moses' mother sees, even in the face of the dictatorship of the Pharaoh, that she has a choice. This is a tough thing to accept, but the idea is that when there's a gun to your head, you don't have to simply abdicate responsibility to whoever is holding the gun. Um, there's still a gap, as Viktor Frankl would say, between stimulus and response. And I think, so, you know, just in terms of dif making difficult decisions, it really helps uh, to actually increase the size of that gap as much as you can so that you can decide what to do. This is particularly helpful in debate. If you know if you're debating someone, it helps to kind of pause and 
and you know reflect ask another question that kind of thing to to increase that gap between stimulus and response because that essentially is a way of increasing your responsibility to what is um, going on and of course response and responsibility are are related so um, in the Exodus story the law says boys must die that's the gun being held to the head of the the Hebrews and Moses's mom says by her actions that the law is wrong and that actually even though it is the law that is saying this there is still a choice to be made and because of this because of this amazing, just lo this love that she has for the child, a love that is in essence the affirmation of being itself, she decides that this child of promise should be saved from the tyrant, even if that m means risking the child's death, because that's exactly what she's going to do. This idea of Moses as, as the child of promise, which is an echo of an idea that I mentioned in the previous episode, that Israel is the nation of promise, this idea speaks in a way of, of the philosophical notion of the contingency of existence, which is just the idea that all existence is secondary and dependent. Um, our being is a gift given by the God who is the being of all beings, in a way. Um, even at the purely material or psychological levels, we notice that everything depends on other things for its form and purpose. Chesterton suggests that perhaps the best place to start with any philosophy is with this really simple idea, which is that everything that is has been in a way saved from the wreck of its own possible non-existence, a little like Robinson Crusoe was saved from his shipwreck along with a lot of um, things from the boat. To me, writes Chesterton, it is a solid and startling fact that any man in the street is a great might not have been. This is why Chesterton argues that the greatest of poems is an inventory. It's such a lovely idea. I'm going to quote him um, quite extensively here. He says, It is a good exercise in empty or ugly hours of the day to look at anything, the, the coal scuttle or the bookcase, and think how happy one could be to have brought it out of the sinking ship onto the solitary island. But it is a better exercise still to remember how all things have had this hairbreadth escape. Everything has been saved from a wreck. Every man has had one horrible adventure. As a hidden untimely birth, he had not been. As infants that never see the light. Moses was an infant who had seen the light in a time during which it was illegal to be alive in a way for him. Uh, because his mother recognized that she could no longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and dabbed it with slime and with pitch and put the child into it, and she laid it in the flags by the river's bank. Here the infant Mo Moses can be understood as the principle of life, which always works against the odds, against Pharaoh's genocidal reign of terror. The idea that Moses is placed in an ark of bulrushes is actually really well worth paying attention to. That word ark should sound familiar because even in the Hebrew, it's the exact same word used to refer to Noah's ark. This idea of descending into the depths in an enclosure is also structurally homologous to the idea of Jonah being inside the belly of a fish or Jesus being inside the tomb. Um, also, water symbolizes the dark, primordial waters that we read about in Genesis 1 before creation. 
For Christians, water also symbolizes baptism, which in turn symbolizes the movement from death that happens before resurrection. There are all sorts of symbols that come into play here. Um, and this is basically the, the biblical idea that descent precedes ascent. So to speak, before we can get to heaven, we have to go through hell first. And that's always true. Uh, you don't get to grow without first having to face the various forms of chaos that existence throws at you. A key idea that shows up later in Exodus is the idea that, in a sense, we take what we learned on the mountaintop with us when we go into the valley. But we only get to the mountaintop in the first place because we've already gone through another valley. I find it hugely significant that Moses' mother risks his life precisely because she wants to save him. That seems like a very counterintuitive thing to do. In a sense, she conforms to the Pharaoh's decree, though, to deny it, um, which is really paradoxical or maybe even oxymoronic. Um, you'll find something here of the, the teachings of Jesus in uh, what scholars refer to as the Great Reversal which is this idea that the humble will be exalted. Those who lose their lives will find their lives. Risk will produce reward. The, the reward is often, as it is here, a mixed blessing. Obviously, all of us face really huge difficulties, and very often those difficulties are just simply unavoidable. As I see it, we have to choose between two options. Either we burst into tears and wait passively until someone comes along to kiss it better, or... We can take the option of making the best of the circumstances, on some level accepting that the difficulty we're faced with is a part of life, and, and then trying to learn from it uh, whatever we can, or working through the difficulty with the knowledge that it will not always be the way it is. So obviously there has to be a kind of acceptance of, of the traumas that we face, but also an active responsibility taken for how we can make things better. The basic choice here is, is to either be a spectator or a participant in life. And Moses' mom represents the latter. She faces the trouble knowing that things might not work out, knowing that she may lose her child. That's the risk she has to take. But the risk pays off. It, I mean, it just happens to pay off in this story. I know that there are many stories that I'm sure many of you out there could share about where you took a risk and it didn't work out. But what happens in this story is that not only does Moses' mother get her child back, but the nation of Israel gains its greatest teacher and prophet, and the world gets a chance to see what redemption looks like. And I think even if you just take the story at the level of its moral significance, or its level, uh, its sort of practical uh, significance, it's still one of the most powerful stories ever told. And we get to learn from it, because it, it's a story that emerges out of dealing with terrible things in a way that is profound. Um, so Moses' mother risks the loss of her son. And this actually echoes the risk that anyone has ever taken when they hand what is most precious to them over to a future that is by no means certain. Still, sometimes risk is exactly what is needed. We build our various arcs, our ways of coping with the world, our education, our understanding, our, you know, we try and be healthy, those sorts of things. And all of that is in the hope that these arcs will carry us above the rough waters. And then, I guess, we just have to wait. A bit like Miriam, Moses' sister, 
um, just to see what happens next. The Ark of Moses shows us that the various turbulences of life can be survived, but this survival always requires help or some kind of context that favors us, and that context may not be within our control. In fact, Moses is a really helpless baby here <laughs> in this point of the story, um, and so there's a kind of heroism represented by his passivity. So he, he, I mean, he doesn't have a choice to really act here, but his passivity, I think, uh, foreshadows just how essential it is when it comes time for liberating Israel from Egypt, that he doesn't try to do it on his own. That's, that's the point. Not the point of we should all be passive and lie and wait to see what happens next, but the passivity of going, okay, I am receptive to help. I am going to, to do my best to, to pay attention to how others might be able to step in and, and make things uh, work out for me. Um, so, yeah, I think that's pretty pretty powerful as a message for, for any of us. What happens next in the story is remarkable. This is um, Exodus 2, verse 5 to 10. It's probably helpful if you kind of read the story along. I'm, I know I'm sort of giving commentary and implying the story along the way. I hope that's sufficient, but it'll be good if you, if you go and check it out yourselves. So what happens next is that Pharaoh's daughter sees this little basket that Moses is in while she's bathing in the Nile. I've already mentioned that the Pharaoh in the Moses story is a profoundly blind and ignorant man in very obvious ways. And I've also mentioned how central feminine virtue is to the saving of masculine virtue. Well, in the Moses story, feminine nurturing and knowing and seeing stands powerfully against the blindness and ignorance of the Pharaoh. And it becomes a sign in the Exodus story of God's nurturing, knowing, and seeing. So God, in, in, in a profound way, in fact, takes on the characteristics of the feminine, or rather, the feminine takes the characteristics of God um, up in a particular way. depends on how you see it. So right early in the stages of the story, Moses and Pharaoh are positioned as arch enemies, and the women in the story, Moses' mother, Miriam, his sister, and then obviously the Pharaoh's daughter, are the mediating presences who ensure that virtue will ultimately conquer vice. What is truly astonishing here, though, is that virtue conquers vice by being brought into its home. That's an amazing thing. So it's a bit like it's a bit like the counterexample of what happens in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, there is one serpent who corrupts, in a way, the whole of paradise. And here, there's, in the Exodus story, there's this idea that a little bit of goodness can, in fact, overcome and overturn the evil of a nation, which is, you know, really amazing idea. Jesus compares faith to a mustard seed, and I think that image gets to the same idea. You know, just as much as there might be a bad apple that spoils the whole bunch, well, maybe there's, a, in a way, a good apple that might make the rest, uh, the rest good as well. So um, something quite beautiful in, in this part of the story where, where Pharaoh's daughter takes Moses in is the fact that she gives Moses his name. In the tradition of the rabbis, the fact that Moses' Egyptian name is retained and remembered while there is no record of his Hebrew name is an indication of how honorable deeds are always remembered. They, they outlast the terrible things um, that happen. And the Pharaoh's daughter is not named, but she is remembered. In the end, 
Moses is nursed by his own mother, but he is still raised as a prince of Egypt. And this is a really uh, uh, confusing thing in a way for him. The idea that Jesus talks about, the idea of being in the world but not of it, is really beautifully symbolized by this. Um, it's the idea that to overcome any system or any way of being, you need to be rooted in another way of being, even while you have to be familiar with the way of being that you are trying to dismantle. That's a very convoluted way of putting it. It's the idea, similar to what Chesterton uh, says, that if you want to change earth, you have to have a vision of heaven, which is something to change earth into. It's hugely significant that Moses is raised within the faith of his people, and yet he is not raised as a slave. This means that he is able to take in a way the best of both worlds. Because he is not raised a slave, he never fully takes on the dehumanization that slavery involves. That's the idea that I was talking about earlier, the idea that you it's you know, it's one thing to get the slave out of Egypt, but it's quite another thing to get Egypt out of the slave. But also, because Moses is an adopted prince of Egypt, he never fully takes on the mind of the oppressor, which I think is so he's he's living within the tensions of this this terrible conflict, and because of that, he is given an opportunity to in a way mediate between the tensions and find the best the best possible way forward. He's capable of leading people out of slavery because he knows what it means to not be enslaved. There's a price to be paid for the fact that he lives in both worlds, though, this kind of split <laughs> split identity that he's got to struggle with. Moses remains throughout his life an outsider. But the plus side of this is pretty obvious. All great people have always been outsiders. So, and I, I know, you know, a lot of you who listen to this have have felt in your life like you don't fit, you're, you know, you don't belong quite in, in sort of one camp or the other. Well, maybe that's a good thing. Chances are much greater that you'll be able to help someone to be free from whatever it is that enslaves them when you are not bound to the, the things that they are. Gregory of Nyssa reads the fact that Moses is still nursed by his mother as follows. He sees that we all need to be nursed by the church, uh, even while we are raised as children of the world. Now, the church, of course, uh, that's an ambivalent space for a lot of us. You know, it's a source of immense pain and irritation, um, even while it may be sort of this perpetual invitation to be part of a community. So um, I think that the point of Gregory saying this is that church is, is that, that point of connection to the divine, that the the enfleshed, uh, embodied connection to the divine. That's what we all need. Um, even as we are raised as children of the the world, the, the status quo, or the ideological sort of field. So Moses has two identities that are always at odds, just as we all do. Uh, he has two sets of parents whose views are not completely aligned. And this, I think, is a foreshadowing of the Christ archetype. Um, Jesus' real father is Yahweh, but he is raised by Mary and Joseph. And the meaning of this, in a way, is that one of the most central human struggles is always an identity struggle. This is not the stupid identity struggle that we refer today as identity politics. It's not that questions of race and gender aren't important. They really are. But huge problems arise when they usurp the primary identity struggle. And the real identity 
struggle is a struggle of identity in terms of modes of virtue. How do we live good lives? If you're one of the dis disenfranchised or one of the elites, how can you be virtuous given the state of being that you are found in, that you find yourself in? And what does goodness look like today, given that many of the various Egypts that we live in do not at first seem to be obviously unvirtuous? In Exodus 3 verse 11, which we'll get to uh, in a later episode, Moses asks the question, who am I? And it's a question that we all need to ask. It is first and foremost, as I see it, a question of how we want to act rightly in the world. It's not that other identity questions are totally irrelevant, as I've said, but they do seem to me to be secondary to the issue of virtue, the issue of how to live a good life. Another powerful lesson to be learned from the fact that Pharaoh's daughter saves Moses is this. Sometimes we might be rescued by something that would at first seem to be on the side of our enemy. Another way to look at this is to ask when faced with an obstacle how the obstacle itself may help you. I think of that amazing story of the siege of Hochostovitz Castle in Austria by the Duchess of Tyrol in the 14th century. The Duchess of Tyrol, who, who had the unflattering name of, or nickname I suppose, of Marguerite Mouthbag, and her army had surrounded the castle for so long that the people inside the castle had started to run out of food. And they were down to their last ox and their last rations of grain. So the chief commander in the castle suggested that the people in the castle dispose of their last meal. He got his people to slaughter that last ox and stuff it with the remaining grain. And then throw the ox over the castle wall into the Duchess of Tyrol's camp. When the Duchess saw this, she came to the only conclusion that made sense to her. The people inside the castle had so much food that they could afford to waste it. So, well then, sticking around made no sense. It would be a waste of energy, time and resources. In fact, the Duchess herself figured out that they, the ones laying siege to the castle, would probably run out of food before the people in the castle would. And so the thing that looked like suicide, throwing your last meal away when you're about to starve to death, was in fact the thing that saved people in that castle. Sometimes moving toward the enemy is the way to overcome the enemy, which is exactly what happens when Moses actually you know, he gets put into the enemy's house. Um, the idea is, you know, fight the dragon, tame the lion, um, that kind of thing. It's a risk, but it is a risk worth taking. It's worth noticing that Moses, in being delivered from the river by Pharaoh's daughter, is in a sense born again. I mean, how powerful of an image for being born again could you could you get? For the early Christians, this was a further indication that the life of Moses was not just one man's life, but a pattern in the reality of our lived experience. The life of Moses is pointing to a higher archetypal idea, the idea that Jesus talks about. We are all born once, but not everyone gets to be born again. And that's what we actually need. We need to be born again. As much as the idea has become a total cliche and uh, evangelicals use it in a way that sometimes really irritates me, I think getting into into the, the deeper meaning of what this, this metaphor means is really helpful. It's this idea that the first birth is the obvious one. 
the birth into a way of living and moving and having our being. You could think of this in a way as the birth into ideology. That's the first birth. We're all born into ideology. The second birth is when we wake up to the depth of our lives and to life itself. And this is a way of living beyond the narrow confines and the problematic sort of coordinates of an ideology. You can think of this, I, I guess, um, it's similar to Richard Raw's notion of, of moving, well, I suppose he gets that from Thomas Merton, the, the idea of going into the second half of life. It's when we know that, you know, in the second, uh, this second birth, it's when we know that the, the purpose of our existence isn't going to be about this or that small, tiny thing that we're doing or thinking, but is about how we find and live out the highest possible good for ourselves and, you know, for others. This is not an easy thing because it relies really heavily on the fact that we all need to grow up, which is precisely what Moses does. It takes him a couple decades to grow up, but I'm not going to talk about that now uh, because I think I've said enough for now. I will be talking more about Moses' growing up and the struggle that he, he faces in growing up in the next episode. Thank you for joining me, everyone. I really hope that some of what I've said here makes sense to you and at least persuades you to ask a few compelling questions of your own. You can, if you want, support this podcast at patreon.com forward slash unorthodoxy. Thanks again for listening in. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.